0: You've got to um, just show that the athletes that it doesn't matter what size you are, it doesn't matter how tall you are, in the end it comes down to what the fight is in within, within you and how much you're prepared to maybe make up that leeway um, when it comes to swimming.
1: Welcome to Swim.Rocks, the show that shares ideas, information and inspiration between swimming people who stay dry. Welcome to this podcast of Swim.Rocks. Uh, probably not hearing Ben for the first time, which is probably a weird time. My name's Lachlan and I'm new here on the Swim.Rocks team and it is going to be an exciting journey that we're going to go on. I have a really good special guest for you today. We have uh, the head coach of Woi Woi Swim Club, Graham Carroll. Here's a little rap sheet for him. We have, he's a super respective coach in the swimming world and here is why. He's a gold license coach. He's been to multiple world champs, Olympics and Paralympics. He has been, uh, he's been a coach to multiple para world record holders and was the head coach of the para squad down the AIS. Graham, well, thanks for joining us here on Swim.rocks. How are you?
0: Nice uh, style. Good. I'm at PLC, at Peninsula Leisure Centre, and uh, obviously not coaching at the moment with the pool, but um, daily we're in here with the other coaches, um, setting up programs for our athletes at home.
1: Yeah, excellent, excellent. And um, so what exercises have you been giving them at home during this COVID-19 crisis?
0: Well, we started off with being in touch with them initially on the first three or four days, finding out what equipment they had at home that they could use and then establishing specific programs for the equipment they had in their houses, ranging in ages from uh, 10 and under, 11 under, which was our bronze squads. So with them, rather than using weights, we try to introduce uh, light-weighted objects like filled-up water bottles or filled-up milk cartons. Um, and then we go up to our senior guys like um, Fergus Henderson and Cassie Van Bruegel who uh, already have personal trainers. So we just monitor what they were doing with their personal trainers through the period to the point where now they're only allowed to do one-on-one uh, training programs. So we just monitor what they're doing at home. Uh, we monitor what they're doing with their personal trainers. And then we send out daily training programs Um, Every morning I get in here at about seven and uh, look at what we've done in the last couple of days and then we establish what the uh, kids can do during the day.
1: Excellent, excellent. Sounds like you definitely got a plan. Is this like the first time you've done a situation like this?
0: Um, Basically for this length of time, yeah. I've I've done uh, programs for athletes who were um, injured, uh, but Mm. this on a long-term program, which we really have planned out, for the next six weeks, and then we're probably looking at that into probably the next eight to ten weeks before we can maybe get anywhere near the pool. Now, luckily, here on the coast, we have the privilege of being um, near the ocean. We've got the, uh, the river system here at the mouth of the Hawkesbury and smooth beaches like Yamine or an ocean beach that the kids can actually go and swim in. Um, unlike some of the Sydney people where they've been banned from beaches, we can actually go to the beach and uh, have the kids do some sessions. We've now moved into the point where the parents monitor the kids so that we as coaches um, can't go there because we're council employees and uh, they don't really like us coaching off-site. So they've cut down on that, but the uh, parents take their phones with them and uh, we can basically virtually um, through through that work system, um, see what they're doing and give them pointers. The other thing is quite a number of kids here have backyard pools. So it's been a great learning curve for the athletes learning how to swim in their backyard pool rather than just playing.
1: And uh, are they tethered, tethered to a pole or something like that in their backyard pool?
0: Yeah. Different pools have different systems. Some have tethered to a pole. Um, some have tethered to the fence and um, some have got a couple of big heavy bricks to hold the, um, the, uh, the, the stretch cords in, in place. But um, I'll get the parents to take photos and they show me what they've set it up with. The ones that have got it up high, um, have a little bit more of an advantage when it comes to body position. But what we've been doing is rather than kids getting there and swimming like mad idiots, um, <laughs> which is what they like to do, um, I've probably I've made them slow down and just make sure, sure that they work on technique. I think that's been uh, an interesting insight to swimming on a harness. So I've used a harness for 30-odd years, and usually it's been with pushing yourself out as far as possible. But now it's come to the point where we don't need to do that. Um, Technique and stroke work and skills is probably the more important thing.
1: Yeah, and definitely quality over quantity. Now, you mentioned there you've been using a harness for 30 years. How long have you been coaching for? And just briefly, can you just talk us through your coaching history without going on a whole hour ramble? Because we could be here for an hour, couldn't we? (laughs) I'll
0: make it quick for you. (laughs) While I was an athlete, up up until I, uh, I gave up swimming, at 22, um, I started teaching in the backyard pool with my mother and at my local pool in Hornsby with Gary Winterham, who was my coach, and I did learn to swim. I did learn to swim for seven years. And I kept asking Gary, I want to coach, I want to coach. He said, you're not going to coach until you learn how to actually teach someone to swim. So as much as I hated doing it, it was probably one of the best learning curves in my life, not only as a former, soon-to-be coach, but also as a swimmer. Because I could see mistakes that were being made by little kids. and I had to think for myself about how to fix them rather than reading it out of a book um, like I know some coaches do. Um, from there, 80, after 80, I gave up swimming, uh, I was a gym instructor, even though my body doesn't show it now. I was a gym instructor for two years at John Valentine's. I was doing uh, aerobic classes, writing gym programs. And again, back then, there was no education in that area. So it was all what I'd learned as a swimmer but I applied to the programs for people to lose weight and get strength in those small gyms. I was doing five aerobic classes a day, so I actually went down to 73 kilos in that time, so I was actually quite happy uh, during that period. Um, After the closure of John Valentine's, I started back with Gary coaching mini squads. Uh, I did that for seven years with him, and then 1986, I moved to Noosa to coach the Ironmen, side so coach, the likes of Guy Leach, Bangham, and all the Uncle Toby's guys, yeah, when they wow. first broke away. Yeah, that was a really great time, and again, it was a learning curve for all of us because we were the first ones, or they were the first ones, to initiate training camps uh, for a period of winter uh, for Ironmen. Um, so we had the great Noosa Park to play in, um, and in days when the surf was up, we didn't train; we just went caught waves, and uh, I think that was part of what made them successful when it came to catching waves in their events, because they knew how to catch waves and hold waves that were big and rolling in any type of uh, conditions, they could do that type of stuff. Uh, following that, '86, I moved down to Warringah Aquatic Centre, um, mm. and that was there for 20 years. Um, yeah, And then after that, to the AIS, and now up here to Woiwoi. So many years, so probably about 35 to 40 years of actually coaching. I'm 59 now, turning 60 later this year.
1: Yeah, and I know I know uh, the coach there at the moment at Warringah, Cameron Gledhill, gives you a rap because your face is everywhere all over the Aquatic Centre. So you are, and prob- yeah, you probably still are, Mr. Warringah. And you know, you get a rap from all the coaches. So, and being there 20 years, you know, you built the, cl- the club up from, you know, s- from nothing Well, I started, or- there, when, I started
0: there after Sue Landells was having a baby. I was only supposed to be there for six months. Mm. Um, and I basically had my foot in the door and I thought, well, I'm in Sydney. I'm in a good pool at the other end of where I was was Carlisle and Carlisle were the national club champions at that time. So Paul Hardman was coaching that program. He a good friend of mine anyway. And uh, I said to him, I said, mate, all I want to do is coach. Uh, I don't want to take your swimmers and I don't want everything to do with them. You just do your thing over there as your elite squad. I'm going to be looking after surf swimmers, casual swimmers, and, and the likes, people that want to keep fit. But in time... Uh, as they say, cream rises to the top. And the swimmers that were in our program started to succeed. Uh, the first young one was a girl named Erin Gard, who you sometimes see on TV um, uh, on those info commercials, And her young daughter, who's now swimming for ringers doing great things. Um, and then through the program came Brooke Hansen. And, and Brooke was the daughter of a guy in my surf club, Ian Hansen, that everybody knows. Mm. Um, she came through the program. And I said to them, you, you want to swim with me or do you want to swim with Carlo? And they said, well, Grub, you're our, you know, our mate from the surf club uh, and you're a breaststroker and Brooke's a bit of a breaststroker because at that time she was only nine. Um, but we could see that there was some form of potential. And at that point when she first started, she couldn't do tumble turns in breaststroke or obviously tumble turns, but she couldn't turn breaststroke properly, hated putting her face underwater. So having her in the program and watching her grow and expand in her skills was a great thing but along the way um we had open water swimmers surf swimmers everything and um eventually whereas we were using two lanes in the pool and Carlisle had four we ended up having four lanes and they got worked down to two because thankfully some of their swimmers actually moved over to my program
1: yeah very nice and also uh know that you went to the olympics you went to sydney 2000 for bolivia was it
0: Yeah, I was lucky enough to be with Bolivia. Uh, Again, paid a fortune there. Um, A friend went away to Bolivia with the Australian indoor soccer team and he came back and said, I've been contacted by the Bolivian um, government. They want someone to look after their swimmers when they come to Sydney three weeks out from the Olympics just to train them and then their coach will join them um, two days before the Olympics started. I said, look, happy to do that. Uh, So we housed them in in a rent house for them and we got the Bolivian community involved uh, from the area, and they supported them with food. Uh, every day they would make meals for them. They came and trained with our program. Um, there were two athletes. One was a backstroker, and the other one was a breaststroke girl. It was actually her fourth Olympics. She'd been going to the Olympics since she was 12. She was now 25, 26. And um, through, the, through that course of training with our programs, uh, the boy, Marcello, uh, was a backstroker. He went from a 10500 backstroke a 59, and um, he was just over the moon and stoked with that at the Olympics. And Katharina went from a 12200 breaststroker uh, to a 1143, And, uh, again, she was just unbelievably ec- ecstatic. And I think one of the beauties of the, uh, that experience was um, they had never trained in a 50-metre pool. They'd only swum in 25-metre pools, And to train in a 50-meter pool for two to three weeks was fantastic. Now, on the day of the Olympic Games, um, they found out their coach couldn't arrive. So they said to me, do you want to be at the Olympics with us on our team? And I was over the moon. But I I sought out Australian Swimming's opinion. And Alan Thompson said to me, you get the opportunity, mate, go. We're not holding you. Mm. And uh, so that afternoon, I went over to the um, Olympic Village with the uh, chef Michonne from Bolivia, and we went through the process of being a member of the Bolivian sporting team for the Olympic Games.
1: Excellent. Now, uh, for those who don't know, uh, during my swimming career, I did swim with you for a few years at Woi and also um, a, a lot of years as well at the Central Coast Academy of Sport, and I know how your sessions run, and the reason I've called you here today is to get your opinion on a big issue that is surrounding swimming at the moment, is the dropout rate with young adults. So the big question today that we're going to ask is how do we keep young adults in the sport, particularly that 18 to that 25 age group? I know you have a few swimmers in that age group at the moment who are doing really well. Cassie Van Bruegel, one of the best pro-strokers in New South Wales, and Fergus Henderson, who's doing a real good job as well. Why do you think that they drop out at that age? I know for me personally, it was because of injury, but why do you think as soon as they leave school that first couple of years, you know, is, is difficult?
0: when you look at there's no one particular point when it comes to the to kids dropping out but there are a number of factors that are involved with them one they they're schooling when they're at school uh, they're in a good controlled environment Um, when they leave school they've got two choices go to university which again can be a controlled environment for them which is similar to school or they have to get a job when they get a job that's where the difficulty lies and You'll find they either have to get up and go to work if they're doing an apprenticeship. They've got to start at 6.30, 7.30 in the morning. They don't get home till late at night. So they're probably the main factors. The other factor that I find is athletes in a young age bracket with some coaches, they get smashed. And they get to the point where they don't improve when they're 14 and 15. And they think, well, I'm not going to be improving. Why am I doing this? This is a waste of time. So they give up. And the coaches that are coaching those athletes haven't got a control mechanism to entice them to stay in the program because they look at it, all right, well, you're washed up. I've got the next 13-year-old or the next 12-year-old that's super fast. They're going to come through. And they rely on those kids to keep their names up. So it's, it's funny watching coaches that have got young kids and they tell you how good their kids are going to be and you, you try and give them advice by saying, don't be in too much of a hurry let them evolve wait until they're mm-hmm. 15 or 16 because you're not going to make the elite team now when you're 14 years old unless you're an absolute freak you need to hang on there and wait the good ones will come through in that 18 19 20 year age bracket and if you look at the current age grip australian women's team or men's team they're basically over 20 years old
1: yeah yeah you know that they say the peak performance for you know, the Australian team for men is around that 24, 25-year-old age group. So, yeah, that that yeah. seven that seven well, years from 18 to 25 is, you know, I guess one of the most invitable ch- years.
0: Yeah, you, if you go out and uh, move out of home, you've got to pay rent, you've got to look yeah. for yourself, you, all these things. You know, back in my era, the fortunate thing was the AIS and that kept a lot of swimmers into the sport, you know, going through. And a lot of those people that went to the AIS in that, 80 to 87 A's uh, year bracket, and now coaches Michael bowl Matt Brown, Ron mm. McKeon, Ron Brewer, um,
1: and not just not, and not just coaches. They they they're great coaches, aren't they? They
0: absolutely, yeah. And and they learn a lot from Dennis Persley, you know, and uh, Bill Sweetham who was there. Um, a lot of great coaches came through that system, even uh, even recently, you know, with Shannon Rollinson being there, and you had Dougie Frost there for a period. Um, You know, there was a number of great Australian coaches that went down there to work with the athletes in that age bracket because, obviously, in their home program, they did only have age groupers. And at that stage, that was the only avenue sometimes for the older athlete to then move. Then you had the separation of the AS into um, state-based programs. So you had NSWIS, QAS, VIS. West Australia had their program in South Australia. So it allowed athletes to then not so much travel outside of their home environment. Uh so that was a great thing. Um what's happening now with home programs being hubs, it's it's going well, but I don't think it's gonna be the uh the greatest thing we've done for Australian swimming.
1: Right, yeah. Um one question that I definitely want to ask you. I know the the two years that I was at Woi Woi and you were, you know, very important to my career mentally, you know, if if anything. Um, I want to ask you, how do you deal with a struggling athlete? I know you're very good at being an understanding coach and knowing what's right right for an athlete. uh, To a young coach who's in their 20s and 30s, um, what strategies could a coach use to deal with a young adult that is going through a rough period of their life?
0: I think what what a a coach has to do is start to understand the athlete and talk to them at their level, but also try and get that athlete to grow up mentally and vocabulary. Um, you know, when, when you're uh, coaching uh, 13, 14-year-olds, it can be yes, no answers. Uh, it can be a domineering coach saying, we're doing this, and the children or the athletes don't know how to say, wow, why are we doing that? And what I, I did with you and Cassie as she came through was make you understand why you're doing training, what you're going to get out of it, what are the steps to get to a certain point in your life where you're swimming your best times again and then dealing with um, the communications levels where you both are on the same road Um, you want to go to the same finish line but you want to travel together and individually talking to each athlete at their level and being able to not so much control them but help guide them through those difficult years and young coaches these days i don't think they've quite quite learned that yet but hopefully if they uh, get to talk to older coaches, mentor coaches like Dougie Frost, uh, myself, you know, even Dick Kane, um, you can learn a lot about how to communicate with what you need to that developing age group into senior athlete.
1: It's kind of like a contract in a way, isn't it? Like you got to set out what you're going to do and then get them on board to sign it. And isn't it?
0: Yeah. You set yourself some values and values uh, about what training is all about. And, You know, many, many years ago, um, there was a guy named John Henkin, who was a world record holder in the breaststroke. And he was a world record holder at 20. And they said to him, well, you're an old swimmer. You know, why are you swimming at 20? And he goes, well, for the first 10 years of my life, I learned how to swim. Mm. Um, For the next four years, I put that into practice. And in the next three years, leading to the Olympics, I learned what I'd learned to make myself better. So swimming is not a short journey. It's a long journey. Mm. And sometimes uh, athletes and coaches are after that quick um, result or that high fix rather than standing in there and saying, you know what, I'm going to let myself go along this journey properly, get the glory in the future. And if I can get in the future, it's going to be a long glory rather than a, a quick fix.
1: And in your coaching journey, you know, when you were, you know, in your 20s and your 30s uh, at the age of um, these coaches that you're giving advice to, has that method kind of changed in a way? Obviously, you learn, but what was your first kind of method?
0: Oh, my first method was actually learning to listen.
1: That Why? took me a
0: while. But in the end, initially, it was like, do what I tell you to do, get in there and do it. Don't argue with me. Yeah. And I'll, I had one girl who was literally – verbally bashing me, and she was five years younger, and uh, she would not do anything I asked you to do, and I I couldn't find a common goal, and eventually I found out she liked painting, and I said to her one day, I said, oh, I hear you like painting, she goes, yeah, I love painting, I'm an artist, I do this, I said, well, luckily, I did painting at school, so as much as I told her and showed her what I did at school, she laughed at me, and had a common interest and once we got that common interest we were able to then move away from talking about the common interest into talking about the common interest of swimming and uh, I think that was a learning curve for me big time big slap in the face when I was about 34 um, initially with all the squad kids at Waringa were involved in surf and they all knew me as just you know the guy down the beach who was now our coach so we were a little bit too close to each other um, it was when I moved away from being their personal friends at the beach that I was able to get the respect that I probably thought um, I thought I should have had when I started, but I had to actually earn their respect as a coach. Um, and that came about through my knowledge as a swimmer, my knowledge about what needs to go forward and the knowledge of what they were dealing with on a day to day basis.
1: So also something I want to talk about is swimming Australia, uh, has addressed this, but also the maturation rate of kids. Um, I know there's a lot of kids who, you know, me personally as well, who's a skinny person and, you know, not naturally a big muscly person, uh, that can put a major effect on a swimmer's mindset, you know, not being as strong as someone in training or, you know, on the blocks, how do you deal with someone's mindset if they are in that kind of zone?
0: Okay, what what, what are you going to do your research when it comes down to that area? And you've got to show them that there uh, champions are made um, from different shapes and sizes in all different sports. You can isolate that down to swimming and show them pictures of uh, your Matt Biondis your Ian Thorpes, um, your Jaegers, and, and even um, Matt Dunn, and those types of body shapes and how they were still able to produce world record times and world record performances. And in women, it's very similar as well. Some of our best swimmers have been, you know, under um, five foot five, five foot six. But then you look at Emma McKeon, who's long and tall and lanky. Kate Campbell's tall and lanky. Yep. Yeah, then you look at Bronte, a little bit shorter, but also a bit more powerful. So you've got to um, just show that the athletes that doesn't matter what size you are, it doesn't matter how tall you are. In the end, it comes down to what the fight is in within you and how much you're prepared to maybe make up that leeway um, when it comes to swimming If you remember Kenneth's toe wasn't very tall yet he had unbelievable skills when it came to his turns so his area of progressing up to the taller person was to use his underwater work um, Michael Phelps and uh, Ian Thorpe both different shaped bodied people Thorpe had the ability to do underwater really well uh, at their first Olympics when they met in Athens and then the following four years you thought Phelps um, improve on his underwater skills um, so he could then move on to Beijing and win those eight gold medals.
1: Yeah, excellent. One thing now that I think plays uh, a massive role, besides the role of a coach and a role of a swimmer in that relationship, but also the parents. I know there's a lot of parents, especially who are, you know, have a 10 or 11 year old kid who I don't want to use the term helicopter parent, but I'm going to. And you know, but, but they, they, they want what's best for their kid a little too much. Um, yeah. do you have a message or a strategy that parents could use that would take the pressure off their child so that it is that that slow grind rather than that quick result?
0: Um I think it's, 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 again different circumstances, different parents. What um, what I've used with with uh, different situations is if you can get to talk to the parents while the child is swimming, because obviously if they're a helicopter parent, they're going to be there watching. Um, you've got to say, have a chat with them while the kid's swimming and saying, I really understand what your kid's doing and doing a great job. And, you know, your input into what they're doing is valuable, but we need to set some boundaries. And if you can establish some boundaries with the parents just by being friendly and telling them that you notice that there's um, that, closeness with the parents and the swimming of the child then you need to try and alleviate that in some fashion and while you're talking to them you can have them not looking at their parents they're looking at you because if they're good communicators that's what they'll be doing and as a coach you can observe and redirect their gaze back towards the conversation that you're having with them and i know there are programs where coaches don't allow parents on the pool deck well i employ them to say bring your parents in Let them watch. Let them see how hard your children are working. You know, Uh, there's nothing worse than um, telling to a parent that, gee, your kid worked hard today, and they turn and go, well, no, they didn't, because they didn't come home puffing or they weren't red in the face. Mm. Yet, half an hour beforehand, that's exactly what they were like uh, when they finished doing that hard set. So getting them involved in watching and observing and understanding that what is going on, during the training session, um, is the kid working as hard as possible? You also got the parent that won't listen. So what you need to do is say, "Time for you to actually go and get a coffee." And I've done that with one parent um, up here at Woi Woi. I said, "Mate, you don't need to sit here. Go and get a coffee and go bring and me back swim. one." Yeah, and then, <laughs> well, that was too. So you try and create uh, a coach-parent relationship similar to your swimmer relationship. And um, you can usually over a period of months um, get around to having them not being so anxious about their athletes. But parents are a breed where they want everything for their child to go well. They want their child to be successful. And sometimes they just hate it when another child just has that ability to do things without working too hard. And that's where the question comes in. How come they're succeeding? Why isn't mine? So you've got to have answers that can Help them get through that period, and basically the one thing is just wait. Your child will come through. They do everything right. Successful end up being their their uh, their golden point somewhere along the line.
1: Yeah, yeah, and also I know you know teenagers especially they want to stay in bed early in those early mornings and will be the parent that's coming in and ripping the covers off and saying get the training. How do you reckon? you can keep that motivation going from an athlete's point of view. So the athlete wants to, uh, wants to get to training, especially when they get into that young adult years. Cause there's some mornings where a swimmer might wake up and go, you know what, not today. And then that not today turns to the next day and the next day. How do you as a coach motivate a swimmer to get there in the morning themselves, not by parents?
0: Uh, one of the, the greatest things you can have as a coach for getting your athlete to come is show them the rewards that are there. Um, one of the downsides with, with athletes not wanting to get out of bed is they might have been up late at night or they've done something at school with their mates or their mates uh, are out doing things that they think, well, I'd really love to be doing that. But swimming is one of those sports where you can't afford to have late nights. You can't afford to be out drinking or partying. Um, but one of the best things is if you're a male, generally you look good. And <laughs> when it goes to come to parties, you are attracted by females, and likewise, females <laughs> are tra- guys. So, uh, you know, in, in a formal way, you say what you've got with your swimming, uh, what your body shape has come about because your swimming is keeping you at that fitness level that some of your mates aren't. And sometimes it's a little jealousy with your mates. Why are they looking so good? I've got to get them out of that training program into the Let's Go On Party program. Um, and then when it comes to the parents dragging you out of bed, well, By the time you're 15 or 16, you should have made a decision by that stage in your life where you are going to get out of bed and tell your parents to get up. Um, So I think it's communication, again, that you need to have with your athlete and show them that the good signs or the good things are ahead of them if they maintain the program. And taking the responsibility to take control of their own lives will actually free them up to be able to do other things. And it's great. If if you're... you have to get woken up by your parents every morning to go training. And then on the weekend, you say, hey, mum and dad, I want to go out with my mates. They're going to say no. But if you take the, uh, the right moves and go training every day and then go to your mates, mum and dad go, I'd love to go out this weekend. They go, mate, you're welcome to do that. Remember, you've got training next week. And usually the athlete will go, you know, you're right. I'll go out for a little while so I can um, have a good time, but I'll be back by a certain time.
1: Yeah, I know um, in an interview uh, after Rio Olympics, Kate said that, you know, Kate Campbell said that swimming, uh, it's not a sacrifice, it's a choice. And I think it's, you know, whether you're willing to make that choice. Um, Last question, Graham. I know some golf courses are shut, but how are you keeping fit during this uh, COVID 19 crisis? Are you getting the boards out and going down to your minor? Um, I'm going down to your minor
0: regularly, actually. I'm actually doing more now than what I did. Um, prior to what do you call this whatever it is now Um, so prior to that uh, I wasn't doing much training except playing water polo and what I'm doing now because I'm here from 7 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon I get the opportunity to go down to the beach get my big 12 foot yellow stingray board out and go for a paddle so I'm actually doing more now than what I did beforehand so I think it's a good thing for me Um, not good for the athletes but good for me but uh, enjoying that side of it. I'm not hitting a golf ball um, because I just couldn't be bothered spending two and a half hours, three hours, sometimes four hours on a golf course, walking around just by myself or with just one other person. And uh, so, yeah, just enjoying it, spending time with my wife, I suppose, which is sort of good.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Graham, thank you for coming on Swim. Rocks and thank you for your insight. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you.
0: Thank
1: you, Locklet. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please do stay safe, stay healthy and stay dry.